You would this morning turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 27. <clears throat> but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. In this chapter, of course, we see Paul opening up a epistle to a church that is in great disorder. We find that he has to begin by correcting them for their preacher following. And we'll notice throughout the book that he has to correct them for a number of errors, both doctrinal and moral errors of their lives and in their church. Here, though, the apostle affirms to them that the gospel which he had preached and the things contained in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are those things which God had ordained to save men from their ruined condition. He said, even though to the Jews it might be a stumbling block, and, or excuse me, and to the Greeks it would be foolish, uh, however, to us which are saved, he says, it's the power of God. The things which you hold dear, the things which obviously testify to God's power and God's ability and God's way of saving His people from their sins. It may not be the way that men would have invented. But obviously the Bible is clear that man sought out many inventions and because of that, of course, they went on a downward path. Uh, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So the ways which we might choose to uh, rescue ourselves from the uh, state we were in by sin is not the way that God would choose. God is going to choose a successful way, not a failing way. What God would do would be a lasting way and the right way. So he tells us in verse 27 that God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are mighty. As I began to consider that verse and go back especially to some experiences in the Old Testament, I find several times where God took what seemed to be weak things, but He confounded the mighty by what seemed weak. The very first instance I call to mind is in Joshua chapter 6 when we find that the children of Israel have gone into the land of Canaan and the very first foe they had to face is the city of Jericho. God determines a plan by which they'll overcome that city and that plan is not a plan that I would use. If I was the architect of the plan of the battle to go against the city of Jericho, I'd use something far different what the Lord did. But the Lord commanded Joshua that he was to call out seven priests and those seven priests were to take seven trumpets and before them were to be the mighty men of Israel and they were to march around that city for six days, one time a day for six days blowing the trumpets and on the seventh day they were to go around that city seven times blowing their trumpets. That was the battle plan that God gave Joshua to overcome Jericho. Can you imagine what the inhabitants of Jericho thought when they saw the armies of Israel just marching around blowing trumpets? Uh, it would have seemed foolish in their sight. 
However, we know the end result of what God did there. That seventh day, after that seventh pass around that city, they blew the trumpets the seventh time, and the walls of that city fell down outward flat, and God gave the city into the hands of the children of Israel. They went in and they conquered the city and killed everybody within except Rahab the harlot and her household, because uh, she had helped the spies, the children of Israel, who went in to spy out the city. Here we see God took something that seemed foolish, uh, men blowing trumpets to overcome a mighty city. I fast forward to the book of Judges and find another occasion where God used the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. In Joshua, excuse me, Judges chapter 7, we find a man by the name of Gideon. Uh, we find Gideon had a ma- massive army, an army of 32,000 men. 32,000 men. That's the kind of army I'd like to have if I'm going into battle. But if you remember the story, that army is going to be reduced by God from 32,000 to 300. I'd rather have that first army, not the second army. But see, God was going to be with the second army and he's going to bless the uh, power of that second army to come and over, overcome the Midianites. God even says about those Midianites who were gathered together, they were like the grasshoppers of the field. That means they were many. Here you have an army of many going to be overcome with an army of few. An army of a few of 300 are going to overcome many. The Bible even says they were like the grasshoppers of the field. Uh, if you remember the story, first of all, God tells uh, uh, excuse me, Gideon uh, that he's to send home those who are afraid. 22,000 went home. 22,000 uh, choice men uh, were afraid. I can see the wisdom in why God reduced the army from 32,000 uh, down to 10,000. Why? Because you don't want men going into battle who are afraid. You want valiant men, courageous men, men of war, men that are skilled, men who trust God is going to give the battle into your hand. But 22,000 of those men were afraid and did not trust that God would give the battle into their hands. And so God sent them home. Then he tells uh, uh, Gideon, the army's still too big. Well, wait a minute. If I'm going to, ar- uh, going to war, I want the biggest army that I can compile. But God says 10,000 is still too many, and this is why. If I give the Midianites into your hands with 10,000, Israel would say that it was uh, through their strength that this came to pass. So God tells Gideon, you take the army over to the water, and they're to drink. And the Bible says that there were those who uh, kneeled down and lapped water like a dog. And of those, there was 9,700. You had 300 men who kneeled down, cupped water, brought it to their mouths. Now, the Bible doesn't say why God chose those 300. I can only assume they were wise men. They paid attention. They didn't bow their head. They kept watch of what was going on. And so God will use that army of 300. Now, God tells uh, uh, Gideon what he's going to take to battle. He doesn't take swords and spears, but rather in one hand a trumpet and in another hand a a piece of pottery or a vessel. And in that empty vessel was to be placed a candle. And when God gave the order, they were to break that candle and blow the trumpets. Now, if I'm going to battle, I want 32,000 men. I want them armed with swords and spears and shields and bows and arrows and any other thing you can find. In today's world, I'd like to emphasize. 16s and uh, grenade launchers and tanks and cannons and everything else but God says no you're going to take a a trumpet and a lantern and you know what the story was here uh, uh, Gideon takes the army divides it three ways places a hundred men here a hundred men there and a hundred men here and at the time we find that he gives the command and he cries aloud the sword of the Lord and of Gideon and they blew the trumpets they broke those vessels those lights did shine and God uh, did 
give the Midianites into their hands. And you find Gideon sends back to Israel and calls for them to come out and help in the battle. And finally, they overcame. God chose some weak or foolish saints there to confound the mighty. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We find another time where a foolish thing overcame the mighty. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we find David comes out to uh, see how the armies of Israel are doing. Uh, Here they are with Saul, their great king, and they're at a standstill for many days because there's this man called Goliath who's defying the armies of God. And there's not one man among Israel who's willing to go up against this man Goliath because he's nearly 10 foot tall. Well, David, a young boy, comes out to see how the army's doing, bring provisions to his brothers. And when he sees what's going on and he hears that Philistine uh, cry against the armies of the Lord, he asks the question, is there not a cause? In other words, is Israel not worth defending? Are you not trusting in God to deliver the battle into your hands? And so David says that he would go out against him. And so Saul agrees. After his brothers uh, accuse him, uh, David uh, is going to go out to battle. First, he takes on Saul's armor. I'd want Saul's armor too. However, he puts it on. It doesn't fit. He says he had not proved that armor, so he cast it off. But see, David is going out there with the memory excuse me, the memory of having faced a lion and a bear. And God gave them both into his hand. And so we find David puts off that uh, armor and instead he takes a sling, five smooth stones, he has a scrip, a shepherd's bag, and his sling. And that's all. However, he comes against uh, the giant who has a spear, a sword, and a shield. Interesting, all their weapons start with an S. However, David's are uh, weak and foolish in the mind of the Philistine giant. I'd rather have Goliath's tools uh, than David's tools, but see, David knew how to use his. And David also knew he was going out there in the name of God. And so he goes out to Goliath and says, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a shield. He says, however, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, uh, the armies of Israel, whom thou hast divided. And so here he goes. He pulls back that sling, lets it fly. It sinks into that man's head. He falls down dead. David takes his own sword and cuts off his head. So here we see where God chose the base things of this world, foolish things of this world to confound the mighty and to confound those who seem strong and those who are wise. Now, based upon that, God, who had chosen those things that seemed foolish, we proceed down to verse 30. He says, Now, but of Him, of God, the same God who overcame great odds by weak means, this same God, He says, By Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now again he says, but of him are ye in Christ. I like that. I love to see anywhere in the scriptures where it tells us that we are in Christ. Being in Christ is the best place to be. You know, in a storm, I like to be in the building. When I'm traveling, I like to be in a car. When I'm flying, I like to be in a plane. But through everything I experience, I far above prefer to be in Christ. Uh, To be in Christ, the best place to be. We're safe in Christ. We're preserved in Christ. We're called in Christ. We'll be delivered because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He says, according as He had chosen us in Him... 
Uh, that tells us before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Him. What did He do? He placed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, we find going forward in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So first of all, we see that we were called in Christ before the world began. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are what? In Christ. Uh, uh, we find that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse one, uh, verse 10, He says that we are His workmanship, what created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. Uh, every time I see in the Scriptures where it places us in Christ, there's a wonderful blessing that comes from that. Uh, to be a workmanship of the Lord Jesus Christ created in Him. And to know that we were called in Him, predestinated in Him, foreknown in Him before the foundation of the world. And to know now because we're in Christ, there's no condemnation that will come our way. Why? Because the condemnation was laid upon Him uh, so that you and I uh, could be guiltless before the Lord. So He says, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So this same God who delivered David, who delivered Gideon, who delivered Joshua, this same God has called the Lord Jesus Christ. This same God has placed us in Christ. This same God has made the Lord Jesus Christ these four things to us. Now as I read this list of four things that I'd like to spend the rest of the time this morning considering, I would have put them in a different order than what the Lord did. I would have put them differently. In my thinking, I would have put redemption first. And I'd have put sanctification next. Or maybe vice versa. I wouldn't have put wisdom at the top of the heap. I would have considered something else far better to start out listing. However, God is wise in how He writes His Scriptures. He does everything just right. And the reason that He says of God, Christ has made to us wisdom, is it's by wisdom that the whole scheme or plan of salvation came to pass. That God put it in order according to His ways, and it's a very wise way. Think for a moment of the covenant between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost that took place before the world began. A very wise plan. It's a very simple plan, but it's very wise in its construction. We see before the foundation of the world that God elected His people uh, that He would die for at Calvary. Uh, God the Father, He chose us in Christ. God the Father, seeing those whom He loved, He foreknew them and predestinated them. And our destiny is determined by God, and that destiny is to be with the Lord at the last day. Uh, that's what God did before the foundation of the world. However, there's a big problem. God did predestinate us before the world began, but the world did begin and something happened there in Genesis chapter 3. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we find a disastrous thing occurred. There we find that Adam and Eve partook of a fruit which God commanded they should not do so and they died there that day. Now, if God was not able to see into the future and know what would take place, that might have ended God's plan of salvation right there. However, God knew even before the world began that He would create man, uh, that He would make man upright. But as uh, uh, the Scriptures say, they sought out many inventions. In other words, they fail. God made man upright and God knew that they would fall before the world began. And so God in His wisdom drew up a plan whereby He might uh, redeem those uh, that would fall, that belonged to Him. Now, not everybody that fall, fell belonged to Him, but those that did, He, uh, can, uh, he invented a way, He thought a way uh, to save them who would fall. 
Here we see that he would send the Lord Jesus Christ who would die for our sins, and he did so. When he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished, we knew that he had accomplished that purpose for which he came, which was the redemption of his people. And God goes beyond that. Here we see the Holy Ghost would come into each one of our lives at some point and give to us divine life. Uh, we would be awakened to spiritual things, awakened to the love of God, awakened to the Lord's people in a lovely way, uh, brought uh, some of us to the house of God to worship Him in spirit and truth. Uh, we also see that God, uh, by His own power, also preserves us uh, uh, from this point forward until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. The Lord will come back the last day. He'll take us all home and there we'll be with the Lord forever. That is the plan of salvation. Talk about a wise plan. The Bible says He does it without fail. Uh, God, He uh, sends His Word. It does not return to Him void, but it accomplishes the purpose whereto He sends it. Uh, so we know God has purposes in mind and also through His actions to deliver us from our sins. That's why Paul says that God, uh, Christ has made unto us by God, first of all, wisdom. Uh, he's made us wisdom in drawing up the plan of salvation that would deliver us uh, uh, from our wicked and evil condition. Notice next he puts righteousness. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us righteousness. Again, I probably would have put this further down in the list. I like redemption. I'd have probably put it first. God put wisdom first because wisdom is the means by which God contrived the plan. Next is righteousness. Why does he put righteousness next? Because that was what we needed. Uh, the problem was we have fallen in sin and we need to be restored. Uh, the problem is we've fallen short of the glory of God. We find that Isaiah chapter 64 declares plainly that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's nothing that we have to offer to the Lord. Uh, the Bible is clear in Romans chapter 3 that we have all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's not one of us that can come before God with our own righteousness and prove to Him that we're worthy to stand before Him. The need for God's people was righteousness. And of course that came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Psalm 85 verse 10. It says mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. He says truth shall spring forth out of the earth. That's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ we find the righteousness that we ourselves cannot attain. We find that uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, For He hath made Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We find the Apostle Paul would also say in the book of Philippians chapter 3, that He came before God, He says, he says in verse 9, being found in him, not having mine own righteousness. See, the Apostle Paul knew what it was to have his own righteousness. He had already lived that life. Uh, he had already been a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had been among the top, the elite, among the Jewish religious order. He knew what it was to dot all the I's and cross every T and do everything that was commanded of God. However, there was one big problem. The Apostle Paul had not experienced regeneration yet. We find Romans chapter 7, he says, the commandment came. You know, that law that he served, however, he says it came this time, it came in heart though. He felt it in the depths of his soul. He said the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. In other words, Paul says, when God's law really touched my heart, not just my mind, but when it finally touched my heart, I saw, he said, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. He said, I recognized what I was through my own righteousness. And so now he says, be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through 
through the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by Him. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain of the resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul says, I've already had all the glory that could come uh, through the righteousness that's of the law. He said, I was blameless in those things, but the problem was I had to stand before God. Standing before men, he looked fine, he looked good, he looked righteous, he looked like he had completed everything God commanded, but the problem is, all of a sudden now he had to stand before God. And we know he at least had one sin, because we find in Acts chapter 7, he stood by why a godly man full of the Holy Ghost, whose face shined as an angel named Stephen, Paul stood by and consented to his death. So we know at the very least, Paul was guilty of Stephen's murder. He stood by while it took place. He consented to it. He agreed to it. He encouraged it. Now Paul has to stand before God. He has to stand before God condemned. That's why Paul said, I don't want to stand before Him having my own righteousness. He says, but rather, the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by Him. Thanks be to God for that righteousness. Paul talks about it some more in Romans chapter 3. When he says, beginning in verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what Paul testified in Romans 7. He says, when the commandment came, what happened? Did it say, Paul, you've done a good job? No, it said, Paul, you've sinned. He says, sin revived when the commandment came, he died. That means Paul was slain of heart when he recognized what he had done wrong. When a child of God is born of the Spirit of God, all of a sudden we see how great sinners we are, and that slays us. In other words, it crucifies us. It puts to death uh, those things. We it makes us uh, just uh, horrible in thought and uh, spirit to know the things we had done against the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it's important for us to know also by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. I don't care what law you give. I don't care if it's the Old Testament law of keeping all those offerings or sacrifices or a New Testament law of having a believer be baptized. It's all law. It all falls short. Uh, the only one that accomplished that, sal- that salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Why? Because by the law is the knowledge of sin. He says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You know who that is? The Lord Jesus Christ. He says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And what he's talking about there, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. He says, for all have sinned. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But notice verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He was righteous to give us redemption or to redeem us. He says, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness. What's His righteousness declared? Here's the declared righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That verse says that God was righteous to forgive all of those that lived and died before the Lord Jesus Christ. God was righteous to do so. How? Through the forbearance of God. What's that mean? God suffered their sin. God long suffered it knowing the time 
time would come when the Lord Jesus Christ would actually come and pay for it. God allowed every Old Testament saint to go on to heaven when they died based on the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ would come and pay for the sins which they had committed. He says God was righteous to do that. In fact, it declares His righteousness for the remission of the sins that are past. But then he goes on to another aspect of God's righteousness. Verse 26, to declare, I say at this time His righteousness. Here's a different time. Here's a New Testament time. Here's the time after the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary that He, that is Christ, might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. So here we find that God showed His righteousness in Old Testament times by allowing those who died to go on and be with the Lord, knowing that His Son would come and pay for their sins. And so they went to heaven on faith. Well, guess what? We're going to go to heaven on faith also, the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, because He is just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Him that believeth in Jesus is simply a way of saying the children of God. Here we see that those who believe in Him, we know that He is just, and thankfully He is the justifier. We're not the justifier, but He is. Now again He says, but of Him, but of God are ye in Christ Jesus. Who God was made unto us wisdom and righteousness. Then he says, and sanctification, and lastly, redemption. We'll look at sanctification for just a moment. We see, first of all, he was made to us wisdom. That devised the plan. Then he was made to us righteousness. That's what we needed. He's made unto us sanctification. That's who it's to. Those who are called of God, the sanctified, those set apart. That word sanctified simply means separated to God. Those whom God has separated for Himself. That tells me when I see the word sanctified, there's two classes of people. There are people who are set apart to God and those who are left where they were. And the Bible is clear that God has His people, His elect, those that He chose before the foundation of the world. Those that He knew and loved, those that He predestinated, uh, predestined, excuse me, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Uh, God saw them before the foundation of the world. He sanctified them, means He set them apart. We turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica about this. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Interesting how declarative that is. He doesn't say that God from the beginning made the way, gave the opportunity if you'll just simply go the rest of the way. Notice what he says again. He says, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Why? Because God hath from the beginning. From the beginning of what? From the beginning of time. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. How? Through sanctification of the Spirit. He says, and belief of the truth. So God, before the foundation of the world, I've already said this a number of times in this message already, before the foundation of this world, God determined that His people whom He chose would be delivered, would be saved. And here the Apostle Paul makes it clear. He says, God hath chosen from the beginning those people, those people at Thessalonica to salvation. 
He says, those of you who are gathered here at the church of Thessalonia, he says, we have been given salvation. God determined before the world began that we would receive it. It's not something that might happen out here in the future. It could occur if we would simply fulfill the law. Remember what I've already said from Romans chapter 3. We cannot be justified by the law. It must come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here Paul says to this church, He says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. We could change the name of the book to Little Union or to any other New Testament church. Any other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this verse applies. He says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We find in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the Apostle Peter says much the same. He says in verse 2, he says, The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, how? Through sanctification of the Spirit, or setting aside by the Spirit of God. Literally, when you're born again, you've been set aside into God's family. Now legally, that's true when Christ died at the cross. Legally, He put us there. We find that God put us there before time began in election. But literally... Vitally, we become part of God's family and set apart to God when the Holy Ghost comes and enlivens us spiritually. At that moment, we are translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. At that moment, we receive the adoption of sons. At that moment, we're taken literally into the family of God. Here we see that of Christ, God has made Him to us sanctification. First, He's wisdom. Wisdom is how God drew up the plan. Righteousness is what we needed. So who did He send? His own righteous Son. And then we're set apart to God by the Holy Ghost. And lastly, it says, He was made unto us redemption. We find in Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 107, verse 1. David writes and says, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. You recognize who the enemy is. That is Satan. That's the devil, the accuser of our brethren. The one that accuses us before God both day and night. That's who the enemy is. That's the one who's against us. And that's the one in whose hands we were and would have been had it not been for the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this world. You recognize if Christ had not died for you, you would be forever in hell where the devil is. Uh, you would have been cast to the lake of fire at the end of time where the devil and all his angels and hell itself will also be cast. And there we would have been forever and ever. However, he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed. That means purchase back or purchase again. You understand that in election, we belong to God. Uh, God bought us in election. When God determined who His family would be before the world began, that made us His. However, something happened. We fell. We fell in sin. We became the servants or slaves of sin. Uh, The word redeemed literally means to buy out of slavery, uh, to purchase out of servitude. It uh, is actually an old term used during the days of slavery. An individual might go redeem a slave and the whole purchase uh, point of purchasing him was not so he could be a slave for you, but that you could set him free. You know, we were the servants of sin according to Romans chapter 6. 
However, the Lord Jesus Christ has come and redeemed us. What did He redeem us for? He redeemed us to set us at liberty. In other words, to set us free. Now I recognize the Bible does say in Ephesians chapter 4 that He led captivity captive, that we were the captives of sin, and now we're captives of the Lord. I find where Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I recognize that in a sense we're now servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a very different servitude than what we had under sin. We were under bondage. Now we're set at liberty to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. We were in his hand. The Lord Jesus Christ bought us back. Why? To set us free. We find that Colossians chapter uh, 1 verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. That's good knowledge, is it not? To know that in Him we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. One of my very favorites uh, regarding redemption is found in Galatians chapter 4, where it says, When the fullness of the time was come, Galatians 4 verse 4, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? He says, To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Interesting, the Lord didn't come and redeem us by so that we could be slaves to Him, but rather He bought us so that we could receive the adoption of sons. In other words, receive the spirit of filling a part of His family. Here He says, to redeem them that were under the law and that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice verse 7. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, no more a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Christ. Talk about the freedom that's been given us through the redemption or the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whom we have redemption through His blood. What did it do? It relieved us from being a servant. But instead, we're now a son and an heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. We find Romans chapter 8 makes it clear that we're not simply an heir, but we're a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we were in the hand of the enemy. Here we were in Satan's clutches. But by the power of the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were bought out of that position and instead brought into the kingdom of His dear Son and now we're heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about a great blessing. Here the Apostle Paul says, of God we are in Christ Jesus who of God was made unto us wisdom. He was made to us righteousness, sanctification, and lastly redemption. As I close out this morning, I'd like to look at all four of those one more time though in a practical way. How that can apply to us day by day. I know the Lord was made that to us eternally at the cross, but I'm thankful to know He's made that to us day by day. Proverbs chapter 2 talks a great deal about wisdom. In fact, all the book of Proverbs does. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, beginning verse 6 says, For the Lord giveth wisdom. Now I'm thankful to know that in the eternal scheme of our redemption, the wisdom of God was great. But you know, there's times as I walk day by day, I need wisdom. Do you not? There's a lot of times I don't know which way to turn. There's a lot of times I don't know the right answer. And wisdom simply means knowing the right thing to do 
at the right time. You know, the Bible says all things are lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. That tells me it may be the right thing at the wrong time. Uh, there's the right way to do things at the right time. And that's the most simple explanation or description of wisdom that I can come up with. Well, I need to know the right thing to do at the right time. And who better to ask but God who has showed us through His plan of salvation that He always does the right thing at the right time. Go back to Galatians 4. When the fullness of the time was come. That means at the right time, God did the right thing. Now here it says in uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, The Lord giveth wisdom. Out of His mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. It says, He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of His saints. That means God is the source of wisdom. And the Bible also tells us in James chapter 1, if any of us lack wisdom, you know where you go? You go to God. James chapter 1 verse 4 says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth all men conservatively, no, liberally, and upbraideth not. You know, that's one thing you can ask the Lord for, and He's not going to get on you for asking for it. That's what that means when it says He upbraideth not. It says, If any man lacks wisdom, simply ask of God, he gives to all men liberally. You know, that tells me that if we're lacking wisdom, the problem is we simply haven't gone and asked for it. I want to know how to conduct myself wisely uh, as I come before you as your pastor, as I live as a husband, as I live as a citizen of this country. I want to live in a wise way. That was one of the great things of Solomon. Remember him uh, when he was becoming king of uh, Israel? What did he ask for? He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for glory. He also didn't ask for the lives of his enemies. You know what he asked for? Wisdom. And God even says he didn't ask it for his own. But rather he asked it for the children of Israel. What did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. Why? So he could judge this thy so great a people. You know what God did? God gave him wisdom. The Bible tells us outside the Lord Jesus Christ, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He was a wise man. Why? Because he asked of God. And God gives to all men liberally. And he upbraideth not. The Lord Jesus Christ has made to us wisdom. Thankfully, He was made to us wisdom before the world began and the scheme of salvation. I'm thankful to know He's made to us wisdom day by day. And when you don't know the answer, you can just simply turn to Him, ask the Lord. He'll give it to you liberally and upbraid not. Now, I recognize sometimes the answer doesn't come right away. Just hold still. It will come. Uh, just wait until He gives you the answer. So again, if you lack wisdom, He's made to us wisdom. Has He not given us all things? My son certainly has. So if you lack it's just because you haven't asked for it. Turn to the Lord and ask. He says He gives it to, it, uh, gives it to you liberally and He upbraideth not. He says He's also made to us righteousness. We find that the Apostle Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse, I believe verse 10. Titus chapter 2, excuse me, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust." We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Now, He's made us wisdom. He's also made us righteousness. Now, I recognize the Bible's clear that our righteousness has filthy rags. Anything that I would bring of myself to God is not worthy to be brought before the Lord. However, uh, we've been given the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. As our sins were placed upon Him, His righteousness has been placed upon us. That's the eternal aspect. However, there is an aspect which we're to live righteously in this present world. Notice again what he says, Titus 2, verse 11. That here came the grace of God. Here came our regeneration, in other words. And what did it do? It uh, uh, taught us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that this is how we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I'm thankful to know that as far as God's concerned, Christ is our righteousness. I couldn't bring anything to please the Lord. But now that Christ has offered Himself in my place, placed His righteousness upon me, now God requires that as I live and as you live day by day in this present world, we're to live soberly, righteously, and godly day by day. Well, I need the Lord's help to do that, do you not? Well, here's the great thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us that Christ has made us righteousness. Not only has He made us righteousness eternally, He's made us righteousness right here and now to give us the strength, the desire, and that which we need to live righteously day by day. He's also made us Sanctification. First Thessalonians chapter one talks about the timely aspect of sanctification. I've already told you sanctification is simply being set apart to the Lord's service. However, there's an aspect of uh, that in our lives day by day. In election, we were set apart to God. Now, as we live before the Lord, we're to set our lives apart to the Lord's service. You know, the Bible tells us we're to come out and be separate. We're to live differently than the world lives. We're to conduct ourselves in a godly way. We're to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Here we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. What is our sanctification? That ye should abstain from fornication. He says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. That means your body. How we're to possess our body in sanctification and honor. We're to know, we're to learn from the Word of God how we're to set our lives apart just as we were set apart in election. God set us apart. Now whether or not you set yourself apart will not have any uh, uh, determination on where you're going to live at the last day. But it will determine how happy your life is here and now. You want to set your life apart, the Lord will bless you for it. You don't set your life apart, you will suffer the consequences for it. Notice again, he says, this is the will of God. Even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication. And also how we should know how to possess our vessel, our body, in sanctification and honor. He says, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness." So this is the timely aspect of sanctification, that we separate ourselves from the way 
the world lives, that we don't live after the lust of our flesh, that we don't follow into uh, fornication or any other dishonorable activity, but rather we know how to possess our vessel unto sanctification and to honor. And you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was made of God's sanctification for us, will bless you as you seek to do that day by day. Lastly, I want to close in Isaiah chapter 43. In Isaiah chapter 43, we see, once again, the Lord talking, and we're going to conclude about redemption. Remember, He's made to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, lastly, redemption. It says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, He says, But now, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. The Bible tells us clearly that we are not our own, we're bought with a price. And therefore we ought to glorify God in our bodies. We are redeemed, we've been bought, and we ought to live as the redeemed. Here he says, one way we can live as the redeemed is fear not. Preached a sermon to you a few weeks ago about fear not. Here would have been a good verse to include in that. He says, fear not. Why? He says, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Is that not good to know that you belong to the Lord? That you are His? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Uh, You belong to Him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He says, whom He had redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. Thanks be to God that the Lord Jesus Christ has been made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and lastly, redemption. We are not our own. We belong to Him. He says, fear not. Why? You have been redeemed. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And I promise you, since you are His, He's going to come back for you. You know, anytime I buy something, I go pick it up. I don't leave it with whoever I purchase it from. I make sure and go get it. I don't like to let loose of money unless I'm going to get something for it. The Lord Jesus Christ owns you, and He's not going to just leave you uh, to where He left you, but instead He's going to come for you. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, He's coming a second time for those who are looking for Him. Without sin, He says, unto salvation. He's coming the second time, and the focus is not going to be about sin. You know what the focus is going to be about? Redemption. It's going to be about salvation. It's going to be about deliverance. It's going to be about taking us home, knowing that we ought to fear not. Why? Because He's redeemed us. He's called us by our name and He has told us, Thou art mine. Since we belong to Him, let us live like it and let us have the confidence that comes from knowing we belong to the Lord. May the Lord bless you as our prayer.